0: This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Arnold Donald and
1: Carnival. Every year in this business... There's typhoons, cyclones, hurricanes. Every year there's geopolitical tension. It's a recession in some part of the world. All those things are going to happen. All those things are going to happen. Assume they're going to happen. Now, how are we going to make our numbers? a New
0: Orleans native turned around a cruise company sinking from a public relations disaster and made it one of the most valuable brands in its industry.
2: That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
0: So think about the complexity of running a cruise ship. The logistics alone are mind-boggling. Shepherding thousands of passengers and their luggage on and off, keeping fresh food and water on board, and then making that food good and beautiful looking— Mounting Broadway-style shows during the trip, running casinos, and that's just the ship. Now, think about running the company that operates that ship. Especially a company where one mishap—food poisoning, rough seas, broken toilets— can potentially sink your entire business. And in the era of Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, a cruise line has to be, well, almost perfect. So who in their right mind would want to run a cruising company— I guess the better question is, who is actually equipped to do that? And the answer, as you will hear, is Arnold Donald. Arnold took over as CEO of Carnival in 2013, and it couldn't have come at a worse time. The Great Recession had cut into people's pocketbooks, and in 2012, a ship owned by Carnival, the Costa Concordia, capsized off the coast of Italy. This was a disaster in every sense of the word. 32 people lost their lives in that tragedy. The next year, another Carnival ship, the Triumph, lost power in the Gulf of Mexico. It took five days for it to be towed back ashore. Passengers described overflowing toilets, sewage-soaked carpets, food shortages, and no air conditioning. So the company's owners, the Arison family, decided they needed to make a big change. And for the first time, they looked for a new leader outside the family. At the time, Arnold Donald was already a successful businessman. And by the way, he was retired. But there was something about the challenge of the situation that attracted him. Because challenges and adversity were not new to Arnold Donald. In fact, he grew up in New Orleans during segregation. He was one of five kids. And he lived in a modest home built by his dad. And from an early age, as a young African-American kid, Arnold Donald was made very aware of what life under segregation actually meant.
1: I was still very young. I'm not sure if I was a kindergarten. I may have been a little bit older than kindergarten. I'm not sure. But I was in a supermarket, a supermarket, um, uh, not too far from the house. I looked forward to Fridays when my dad would get his paycheck and I could you know go with him to the grocery store to make the weekly groceries, and it was always a big treat for me, but I was very curious about uh there were two bathrooms for men there was the gentleman's bathroom and then there was the colored bathroom and and so I was um very curious about what went on in the gentleman's bathroom because I had to use the colored bathroom and so I just snuck in and I went into the gentleman's bathroom and i came out and yanked on my dad's pant leg and I said, Dad, you know, why is the gentleman's bathroom, you know, so clean and ours, you know, so dirty? And you know, the gentleman's bathroom I remember it like it's still in my mind it was white porcelain, it was clean and everything and ours was like rusted tin and the toilet paper was brown craft and uh, and it was leaky and water on the floor and that kind of thing. And my dad, I'll never forget the look in his eyes. He was so afraid. And and he said, he said, boy, don't you ever, ever go in that bathroom again. You understand? Don't you ever do that. And it's the first time I remember my dad kind of scolding me or anything, so I was really taken aback, and I didn't really understand what was going on. I just remember being afraid. And then he put his hand on me, and he said, son, the reason why— their bathroom is clean and ours isn't. Is because they have us cleaning theirs and no one cleaning ours, and and I and I I just remember like it happened yesterday.
0: Wow, what was your what was your home life like?
1: Yeah, the home life was great. I was the baby. You gotta love me. I'm the baby. You gotta love me. So I had um, three older sisters and an older brother, and then my mom and dad took in over time twenty seven, roughly twenty seven different foster kids. And so um uh so there were lots of kids around and you know lots to do plenty to do um uh, plenty of fun to have I was the baby so you know I, I you know I I always felt like I was privileged <laughs> and um and it was fun I had a great backyard my backyard wasn't very big but um we were in the south in New Orleans and um we had banana trees and you know i had chickens in the backyard and um and my brother you know uh for a while i had homing pigeons and after storms we would get new animals after one storm that we had a monkey in the banana tree that we caught we had a monkey for a while and and then had a snapper turtle after a flood that we had an old one of those old um washing machines that uh uh, you know, it was a broken down washing machine we just had in the backyard. I had pets, I had, you know, dogs. I named them after celebrity dogs. So I had Rin Tin, Tin you know, who was, um, uh, I called, our our dog was named Rennie, but he was named after Ren Tin, Tin. And I had a Lassie, a Collie, uh, we called Lassie. And I had another one, a um, dog that looked like uh, Roy Rogers' dog on, on the Roy Rogers show. We called him Bullet. So, um, so you know, it was fun.
0: What was your parents' view on education? I mean, was, was doing well at school really important to them?
1: It was really important to them. My parents both were from Convent, Louisiana, and uh, they had grown up there. And um, uh, neither had gone past eighth grade. My dad, because when he was of that age, there was actually no school for him to go to. Um, my mom later, just because... Of, of situations in her family situation, uh, but they both thought education was very, very important for all of us, so all of us, you know, all my siblings went to college, you know, several have multiple degrees and so on, uh, but although my mom and dad didn't have that level of education, they thought it was really, really important.
0: Hmm. And, and what about
1: your, your neighborhood
0: where you grew up? Did it, did it feel safe um, or did it, did it feel dangerous and, and violent?
1: As a little kid, of course, it felt safe because I hung out in my backyard <laughs> and um but once um, I got older, it was definitely um a violent neighborhood at one point. I think Time magazine listed the area as the murder capital in the United States or something and uh so growing up, you know you had to be alert, but you know you you adapt to your environment, so while it was dangerous um i you know I felt I had to be alert, but I didn't walk around f- afraid all the time, you know. Um, and I had my own incidents where, you know, things happened and, and what have you. But, you know, I survived them all and no major injuries or anything. And um, But it was uh, definitely a tough neighborhood.
0: I, I, I read that uh, a pretty important turning point in your childhood was when your parents – uh, enrolled you in an all male, black Catholic school. Um, yeah, and I guess you started there in middle school. How, how did that? How did that experience sort of like? How would that go on to impact your life?
1: You know, actually, I, I um, the turning point was finishing sixth grade because when I finished elementary school, I went to a public elementary school, and when when I finished it, um, I was going to go on to junior high. Um, and I was prepared to go where my siblings had gone to school, Carver High School. A um, Marshall Falk you know, was running back for the uh, St. Louis Rams. And when he, he went there and a number of other people, I saw my first James Brown concert when I went with my brother at, at that high school. And I was all prepared to go there. My brother was eight years older than me, but, you know, he was a track star and my sisters were well known and all that. And so I was going to just go to that school. But integration happened. And so it was the first year, uh, the year I graduated, that they were integrating this one junior high school. And my mother was afraid, you know, I would get beaten up or something terrible would happen because it was a predominantly white school that they were going to send me to. And so she thought I shouldn't go. And that forced them, even though they had no money, to put me in our parish school, which was um, St. Philip the Apostle. And uh, they found money somehow, and they put me there in seventh grade. And in the seventh grade class, all the boys in that class took the exam to go to St. Augustine, which was the only all-boys Catholic school that at that time black kids could go to. So it was all-boys, all-black Catholic high school. So I just went along with everybody else and took the test. And it turned out I did very well on the test. And then I had to go through an elimination process through a summer program to go into eighth grade at St. Augustine. And my mom and dad, again, somehow they found the money to pay for eighth grade, because you had to pay to go. But I was on scholarship after eighth grade for the rest of the academic scholarship for the rest of the time at the high school. Hmm.
0: And, and I heard that uh, like every day at school there was, there was like a, the same announcement over the PA system, uh, like a few, <laughs> few times a day. What did
1: it say? <laughs> yeah, three times a day. They would say, gentlemen, prepare yourselves. You're going to run the world. And I did it when we first walked in, they did it at lunch, and they did it at the end of the day. And the whole concept behind St. Augustine, which at that time was run by the Josephite Fathers, was to k- kind of correct, you know, the wrongs of society. So society was telling uh, us, you know, the young black men that, you know, you're a second class citizen, you can't eat at this counter. You can't use this bathroom. You can't use this water fountain. I mean, and and it was, you know, all negative, negative, negative. And they just wanted to flip the switch and say, you could be anything you want to be. But they also taught us, you know, no excuses. And they said, you know, life isn't fair. You will be wronged throughout life. But you can't let that hold you back. You have to decide what you want to do. And then you have to prepare. So you have no excuses. And um, one of the priests had a, a saying, I think, Vince Lombardi, um, you know, said at first, which was, it's not the will to win, it's the will to prepare to win. And so they really insisted on preparation, 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 and, and we excelled. We excelled in athletics, we excelled in music, we excelled in academics. Um, uh, one of our teams won the national debate championships, another team won the national math contest. and uh, you know, football teams were stellar and the basketball teams and so on. Um, in fact, I think there's over 40 graduates of St. Augustine that have played in the NFL, uh, a host in the NBA, um, musicians, and, uh, and it was a, a fantastic experience. And I grew up during the time of change. Civil rights, man going to the moon, you know, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you know, I grew up during that time. And so it was a time of change and at a place that was really positively reinforcing us.
0: So when you were in high school and you were getting ready for college, did you like have a plan of what you thought your life was gonna be, was gonna become?
1: Well, somewhere along the lines, um, they effectively brainwashed me, and I decided I was gonna be a general manager in a Fortune 50 science-based global company. Nobody in my family was in business, <laughs> so I had no idea what that was. But uh, somehow I landed on that, and I mapped out a plan to do it my junior year in high school, and I mapped out a plan to achieve that, and, and then I executed the plan.
0: So when you were a kid, where, like, where did your self-motivation come from? Because I mean I mean clearly, you were really motivated to succeed right and to work hard and inculcated with this idea that y- you were going to face challenges in life for reasons that were obviously unjust and unfair, but but you i mean you clearly you were just forging ahead. Did that idea originally come from from home from your parents
1: i I think it came um originally from home. um My youngest sister was three years older than me. And she really wanted to be a teacher, and she knew she wanted to be a teacher at a very young age. And I was her first student. So before I ever got, went to kindergarten, I could read and write and do simple arithmetic. And, um, and so she taught me those things because she needed somebody to practice on. I was her one student as she practiced teaching. And so when I finally went to school, everybody thought I was smart. And so I got a lot of positive reinforcement, but I also learned to love to read. And so I read nonstop. And um, when the little bookmobile would come around during the summers, and you'd get a certificate at the end of the summer for reading X number of books, you know, my goal was to read that number of books in one week. You know, I, they wouldn't even let me check out as many books as I wanted to read. And and I just loved reading. And through reading, there were a lot of heroes, you know. Um, I read everything, so I read about George Washington Carver and Booker T Washington and w b Bois. you know I, I read about um, military you know, things I read about cowboys you know I, read, I just read and read and read, and so I developed an intense curiosity and and so that kind of propelled me forward, and I got so much positive reinforcement along the way
0: hmm. uh, arnold i'm I'm curious when you were in high school, and you know you were in this amazing environment. Clearly, all, all around you, and people were really trying to instill a sense of self confidence, and and you know this idea that you could accomplish anything you wanted to. But I mean, you were still living in New Orleans, just around the end of, of segregation. And I mean, you must have encountered moments in in your high school period or before or after, where even though you were at this amazing place, you were. Called racist things, or you you encountered racism outright. Many times, many times, many many how, times. How were yeah. you able to cope with that as a kid? I mean did you did you just internalize it and and move on, or I mean that must have been incredibly hurtful to say the least.
1: One of the very first ones that I remember because I was so frightened. Um, I was not. I was still in elementary school. At the time, I wasn't in high school or anything. And um, we had a a youth, uh, Catholic youth volleyball team, you know, boys and girls. And Father took us, um, you know, to play volleyball. And um, because it was Catholic, you know, some of the Catholic schools or some of the other churches would allow you to play even though it was interracial and um whereas in the school system you couldn't do that because uh, athletics was segregated at that time but we went to this one community once and to play volleyball and and we had seen an ice cream shop from the bus we went on Uh, and so while the girls were playing we asked father could we walk down to the ice cream shop to get ice cream he said okay you good boys go ahead and come right back and so we walked out and we were elementary school kids and we walked out and um this cop car pulled up onto the sidewalk and uh, jumped out and had a, a gun, a rifle, and and pinned my head up against a wall. And what are you boys doing in this neighborhood? What are you doing in this neighborhood? You know, and you know we said we're going to get ice cream. They said you don't you know, don't lie to me, and so on. And finally, we you know we able to convince them. They took us back. They saw father. They put him on the side, talked to him, and basically told him you make sure you keep him in here. And you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, we had extreme stuff like that happening and all the subtle stuff of name calling. My high school went to court and um, won the rights to integrate high school athletics. And so, because of that, yes, you know, when, we were, when I was marching in the band, I played alto sax in the band. When I was marching in the band, people would shout out from the crowd all kinds of very negative derogatory things you know and and they taught us early on they said look you're gonna be called names you may stuff may be thrown at you etc if you can't handle that don't participate because it's going to happen but here's how you need to respond because if you respond in this way in the end you know you'll carry the day and so they taught us and trained us and told us you know no excuses and because somebody else has a problem, don't let that become your problem, you know. And so it was, you know, it's, it's good life lessons. Wow,
0: I know, um, I know that you you had scholarship offers from from Princeton and Stanford and Yale, West Point, um, but you chose to go to to Carleton College in Minnesota. So not only like from the extreme hot of New Orleans to the extreme <laughs> cold, but but presumably also like to a really a predominantly white liberal arts college in minnesota far away from your family was that a hard transition for you as a, as an 18 year old
1: no it wasn't a hard transition and, and it was a conscious decision so um as you mentioned i got accepted a lot of places i had scholarship offers a lot of places because of st augustine you know i mean we we you know my whole track the a track i was on all all of us had scholarship offers almost everywhere and and the bottom line was um you know, I decided to go to Carleton, and I thought Carleton was the right place for me. I visited the college; it was small. When I met when I visited, I met with the you know head of the physics department. I met with the head of the math department. I met with the president of the college. When I visited other colleges, it was a PhD student or a graduate student that walked me around, you know, that kind of thing. And so I felt, wow, this place is small uh, eighteen hundred students at the time. Is in rural Minnesota, Northfield, Minnesota. And I thought to myself, you know, how much trouble can I get in here? You know, if I just, you know, it's cold. I'm gonna be, you know, I'm, I'm gonna focus on what I need to focus on. It'll help me be disciplined, and and you know, um, and not be overly fun loving, um, but still have fun. And um, and and it was a good choice for me. And and the faculty were very invested in in the students. You can meet with a faculty member any time. You often had class in their home. I mean, it was it was just a nurturing kind of place, and and that's what I thought I needed at the time, and it worked out well.
0: So Arnold, when the when the movie version of your life is made, uh, <laughs> this part is also going to be unbelievable because, from what I understand, you actually met. On your visit to Carleton, when you were just visiting, you you met another (laughs) student visiting named Hazel, who also ended up going there, and then became your wife.
1: Yes, yes. Hazel had been accepted lots of places, including Princeton. She's from Boston. She had attended what, at the time, was Girls' Latin School, and we were brought out to visit Carleton as um, prospective students on the same weekend, and... um, I walked into the chairman of the math department, um, uh, being a little late like I habitually am, and sitting there was... um, uh, nice head of hair facing the chairman of the math department and I said wow that's going to be my wife I didn't know what wow. she looked like I had not met her or anything wow. and, and I remember thinking in in the you know the way I would think at that time I hope she's cute <laughs> <laughs> because I couldn't see her face or anything <laughs> and so uh, luckily when she turned around she was and, and, um, and so I um, but I just knew that was going to be my wife and two years later End of our sophomore year, we were married.
0: Amazing. That is amazing. I mean, it, <laughs> it really does make you think about luck as an important force in the world. Yes, You know, luck yes. that she was there the same weekend, that she also chose Carlton, and that she had these other yes. amazing opportunities that both of you were there at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's it, because you're still married today.
1: Yeah, we are. But yeah, it's um, luck, destiny. You know who knows what's premonition and and who knows what's what, but yeah. So um, uh, you know, I'm from New Orleans, so that all that stuff kind of you know means a little something to <laughs> me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to fast forward a, just a bit because I
0: I know that you went to Carleton, You and Hazel went there, uh, and then you did an engineering degree, I think, at Washington University afterwards. And in the meantime, you were recruited by Monsanto. Um, a company that, that, of course, is a Fortune 100 company, uh, recruited to go work for them. Yep. Like, how did how did that happen?
1: Well, um, there I um, at Washington University, um, one of my jobs um, was assistant to the dean of the School of Engineering, and in that role, uh, I was to help students find summer employment and to find you know permanent employment. Even though I was a student myself. And in my efforts to um, help students with that, you know, I met the recruiters from Monsanto and they said, well, what about you? Well, every summer prior to that, I had worked for Exxon, but I needed to be near Washington University that first summer after I'd uh, done my first year there. And, uh, And so I ended up saying, well, sure, if there's an opportunity here in St. Louis, I'll look at it. And one thing after another, I took a summer job with them. I had a great experience in the summer job. And they made me an offer at the end of the summer for a permanent job, you know, subject to graduation. And um, I told them if it was in Chicago uh, in a particular division, the detergents and phosphates division at the time, because I had done my homework and that was the fast track division, um, then I would consider it. And normally they would not tell you, where you were going to go. You went into a pool, a training pool. And when you finished training, you know, they would assign you. So I was having them do something out of cycle for them, but they really wanted me to come. So they, they did it. They made the commitment. And so I chose to go, go with my sandal company. I felt good about the people. I felt good about the company. And I knew I was going to Chicago because I wanted to go to the University of Chicago, graduate school of business. Uh, You know, I'd made that determination. I need to be in Chicago to do that.
0: So, so it was never your intention. I, I should say that this is like foreshadowing because you would go on to work for Monsanto for like 23 years. Yes. But it, it doesn't sound like that was your intention
1: initially, that you were just going to go work for them for like a summer or two and figure it out. Oh, well, when I first went for the summer, I had no intention, and when I first joined, that I would be permanently with them because, of course, Exxon, I worked a number of summers with and. Uh, Exxon was recruiting me as well. But when I graduated from engineering school I had like twenty job offers. Engineers were hot. I was also African American, that you know, that that made me even more unique or whatever. I went to a great engineering school at Washington University. I'd worked for Dean McKelvey the 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 engineering school is now named the McKelvey Engineering School, <laughs> uh, and so um, uh, and so, I had a lot of opportunities, and uh, in the end, I chose my sample for the reasons I shared with you. And um, but no, I I, I didn't know because my plan was because uh, I developed this plan, and my plan was not company specific. It wasn't even you know job area specific. It was to get certain types of skills um, in one job to prepare to be successful in the next one. And over time, become a general manager and a science based Fortune 50, you know, global company. And so that that yeah, I, I had no intention of like staying with one company, not staying with one company that wasn't even in the picture.
0: That is uh, that is such a weirdly specific goal that you had from the time you were in high school. Yes. Uh, it really I want to is. be a general manager, it really and you is. did. Like, I, I think at what, like age thirty, thirty-two, you you actually become yeah. a general manager at Monsanto. But
1: it wasn't a Fortune 50, so I failed miserably. <laughs> I think we were, you know, Fortune 150 oh. or something. But, um, but yeah, but you no, know, really, I did, and um, and it was a great experience. I mean, unbelievable experience. Great company, great people, super people, and um, and it led ultimately to a number of jobs after age thirty-two. Um, where we you know helped transform a few industries. it was fantastic.
0: When we come back in just a minute, how Arnold Donald climbed his way up the corporate ladder all the way into early retirement, and how he came back to lead a struggling cruise company. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top.
3: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom.
0: Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built-It Productions. I'm Guy Raz. So over the course of 20 years, Arnold Donald achieved his high school dream of managing a major company, eventually becoming senior vice president and then president of an entire sector at Monsanto. And then... He left the company in 2000. But throughout that entire time, Arnold says he never once had the urge to be a CEO.
1: I I never once focused on titles or money. You know, it was always job content. And it was always, what am I doing? What kind of work am I doing? Et cetera. And how is that preparing me to go to the next level? Because my concept wasn't CEO. It was general management. You know, I wanted to manage lots of different functions, globally in a science-based company, okay? And so that was really my orientation. So I never thought about CEO or not CEO or vice president or senior vice president, any of those things. And um, and so that never dawned, you know, I never thought about it that way. Uh, but in the end, yeah, it ultimately led to all that, but that's that wasn't my focus. So I guess after 23 years there, you, uh,
0: you had this opportunity, which sounds really interesting, uh, to join a group of investors to buy Equal, the the sugar substitute that Monsanto actually owned, and then they spun it out. Uh, and you guys bought it uh, and formed a new company. Uh, how did that? How did all that happen?
1: Well, we were um, on a mission to transform the way food was produced, and um, we also had a co- several other businesses at the time. But we were going to merge the company um, with another company, American Cyanamid, at the time. And so in the process, I got assigned to um, uh, oversee a, a number of businesses that we were gonna divest, and one of them was the Equal Sweetener business. And so how it came about was uh, I was looking for buyers. I had a good friend from engineering school who was in private equity, uh, had been you know, really successful, he has partners, and so I called him and I said, 45 days, no financing contingency, here's the number, it's a great deal, you should buy it. And he said, I believe you because you're my friend. And I believe if you say the numbers are real, I believe that. But when I go to my partners and say, give me $600 million because my friend says this is a good deal, they're going to laugh me out the room. He said, the only way this is going to work with 45 days to to you know execute and no, no financing contingency. He says, so uh, the only way this is going to work is if you join me, if you come with me. We always say we're going to do something together. So come with me. And I said, "Oh, come on! It's a small business. I've run billions, multi-billion dollar businesses with lots of technology. It's no technology in it. I don't think so." I said, "But I tell you what: you can list me as a contingency because this is such a good deal. Once you guys get into it, you you won't care whether I come or not." Mm. And he said, "Are you sure?" He was always smarter than me. And I said, "I said, yes, I'm sure." He said, "Are you positive?" I said, "Yes." Yeah, somebody he said he asked me like five times, and I said, "Yes." He said, "Okay." And so he said, I'm putting you in as a contingency. And as soon as he did that, unbeknownst to me, and it was so obvious, but I just wasn't thinking, I had to recuse myself from the business because I'm now conflicted. (laughs) Right. And and you just bought yourself a new job. So I I had to take myself out of the business. Monsanto wanted me to stay at Monsanto, but, but I couldn't work on that business for that period of time. And I had several other businesses I was overseeing, so I had plenty to do. But it did create some time. And he worked on me every day. And eventually, I got to the point where, um, because, again, I was never focused on being CEO or any of that kind of stuff, um, it just looked like it would be fun to do. So, we did it. Yeah. You know?
0: And and you went on to, to run that company, Marisan, I think it was called?
1: Yeah, Marisan. We formed the company, and it was a lot of fun. We, we had a lot of fun with it. And then yeah, you were ahead. there until, I guess, 2005. And at that point, uh, you're 51 years old. You
0: are financially secure. Mm-hmm. You basically got to a point where you probably made more money than you ever imagined you would make in your yes. life. And uh, you kind of retired, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, I did. My wife tells me I didn't, but yeah, I thought I did. And so I you know, stepped down and um, I stayed on I was on a number of boards of companies and I started having fun and goofing off. I, you know, bought into some minor league basketball teams and, uh, you know, was traveling the world, just having a good time. Um, But that was going to be the end of your corporate life. Yeah. I had done my general management stuff. I, you know, was financially secure. I wasn't wealthy, but I was well off. And, uh, and so we were fine. And, and, you know, we just had, just had a good time. Um, But then, but then I decided to give back. And so, I uh, built this crazy house. Everybody wanted to see it, and uh, one of my best friends, who I call my wingman, uh, Carl Sestak, had helped me with the electronics in the house. And I said, "Well, I'll do the first fundraiser that I host in the house, with, you know, on your behalf. Which, which organization you'd like me to support?" And uh, he picked, you know, juvenile diabetes, and so. We had a big fundraiser for Juvenile Diabetes, brought in the head of Juvenile Diabetes Worldwide, had the governor in Missouri there, all these people in the house and all that. And,
0: and, and you were next, still in Chicago,
1: right? No, I was living in St. Louis. I, my hmm. business was in Chicago, but I was living in St. Louis. Okay. So this house was in St. Louis, and I brought, um, I, I sat next to another uh, guy who was running JDRF at the time. And... And grilled him. I said, "You raise a couple hundred million dollars for research every year. So you making any progress? I mean, what's happening? Are you getting closer to a cure? What do you do with that money?" And you know, I just grilled him, and he had really good answers. And um and I said, "You know, if I ever decide to do anything again, the kind of thing you're doing is something I would think to do you know, about doing." And little did I know, but the next day, that was like on a Saturday. So that Monday or something. He let them know he was retiring, <laughs> and and he said, I think I found my replacement Saturday night in St. Louis. So you eventually end
0: up running this foundation, the, the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, um, and then you went on to to do some other nonprofit work. But how like how what what happened with carnival, like I guess you get a call from the owners at some point and they say, "Hey, we want you to run this thing so h- how did that happen?
1: Well, I had joined the carnival board back in two thousand and one, I think, and so I had been on the board right um, almost twelve years before they approached me almost thirteen when they approached me in two thousand and thirteen and and um, how it happened was i 'd been on the board and Uh, You know, the directors had gotten to know me. And of course, Mickey Harrison, who was chairman and CEO at the time, had gotten to know me pretty well. Um, And so when I got the call from the lead director, I was shocked. I had no idea. I had never once thought about running a company. And I almost said no on the spot because I was cruising through life. I mean, I was, you know, I you know, I was giving back and stuff, but it wasn't what I considered full-time jobs and and whatever, you, you know. And so to go back into the rat race of corporate America, I wasn't sure I I really wanted to do that at all. Um but because it was people I had so much respect for, Mickey and uh, Stu Sabotnik, the lead director, I felt I at least had to have the conversation. But in any event, um, yeah, after meeting with Mickey and and uh, then meeting with each of the board members individually, yeah, uh, you know, I realized it was a great opportunity. And, and in the end, um, it's the best job in the world, guy. I mean, I, yeah, you know, I, I really should have been begging for the job. It's absolutely the best job in the world. I don't,
0: I don't know if everybody would have been begging for that job in in 2013. Because let me just paint a picture of of what was going on. Uh, two major crises, right? You, you had the crisis with a ship that capsized off the Italian coast, which was a carnival owned ship, uh, which was a huge story in the news. Uh, and then in 2013 another carnival ship suffers a power outage that affected the sanitation system and the passengers were, were dealing with raw sewage. I mean you, you're coming into a company that essentially is let's face it it was it was in a crisis at that point.
1: Well, you know the facts are that um, the company and the industry, Um, from a financial performance standpoint, have been languishing for a number of years. There was geopolitical tensions with the Arab Spring. There was the big global economic recession. I mean, all those combination of things like a perfect storm and The media was really negative on crews at that time. And so when things did happen, especially like the one you mentioned where, you know, the power outage on the one ship, uh, the media really played it up. And so uh, you thought it was this mega crisis when the reality was, you know, on that one, there was no crisis. Um, The ship didn't have power, but it was being told it was under control. Justifiably, understandably, there were a number of guests who were really upset. Um, But the core business was still very good. It's an unbelievable product that people who cruise were not affected by any of that stuff. People who had cruised before, they were still cruising um, because they know what a great experience it is and what a great value it is. But to get new to cruise... It was becoming increasingly difficult because there are a lot of myths about cruising. And when you see that stuff on TV and you hear the general conversation, if you haven't cruised, it doesn't encourage you to try. Right. And so we needed to address that. And, um, um, and then that's the top point in time when I came in. I mean, at that time,
0: 2013,
1: um, the share price, I think, was
0: around $33. And so Carnival was making money. But mm-hmm. a, a lot of investors and analysts were saying that it, it wasn't doing nearly as well as it should have been doing given the state of the economy because it was starting to turn around at that point. So, I mean, it sounds like you wanted to take this challenge on. But I, I don't think it's unfair to say that there was a lot of work to do.
1: Well, there was work to do, but the reality was we had a core asset that was so powerful and good. And and having been on the board that long, I knew that, okay. And having cruised myself a lot, I knew that. You know, my wife and I started cruising in the late seventies, and I had been on a lot of different cruises. And and uh, then as a member of the board, I'd been on a cruise, and so I knew what we had. So I knew the core asset, and I also knew the people, which is. The essence of any business I also knew the great people we had. And and so I didn't go in fearing ability to turn it around or being concerned or anything. And I, I just went in knowing I needed to listen and I needed to listen very carefully to everybody, whether it's the cabinet student or the president, whether it's the guests, whether it's someone who had cruised or not cruised, the media, Government officials, I needed to listen, listen, listen. And if I listened carefully enough, you know, the answers would reveal themselves because we had a core thing that was rock solid.
0: So so Carnival, I, I think a lot of people don't realize, is that it's a huge company, is like nine or ten different cruise line brands, more than a hundred cruise ships around the world. When you got to that job, when, when you got to the CEO chair... Did you have a clear plan of what you wanted to do, and and what was the plan?
1: No, I didn't. When I first got there, the only thing I knew we had to do was we had to turn the media. You know, the media was so negative; it, it was constantly putting negative noise out on crews. and I knew so we how had how to address that. that. Um, to me, it was it was very simple. To me, first of all, I I lucked up. So the day before I joined, literally the day before. Yeah. They had hired a, a PR person, which they hadn't had, and they hired a, an excellent person, a guy named Roger Frizzell, uh, who came in. And Roger's first day on the job was he found out there was going to be a new CEO. <laughs> so, he had, so could you imagine his feeling when he heard that, and that his first job was now to introduce this new CEO that he knew nothing about to the world, right? But in any event, um, I, I knew we had to do that, but all we had to do was expose them to crews, to get them, as opposed to just talking about it, to visit a ship, to experience the crew, to experience the guests, to go into the engine room and see how, you know, I knew that's all we had to do. And then once they saw it and felt it, then give them the facts. And we just had to expose them to that, and, and we went on a mission to do that. So that was the first thing, to soften the beachhead to be able to create demand. And then the rest was then internally to organize properly, motivate the people properly, make sure we were focused on the right things, and to go back to St. Augustine, no excuses. So the reality is, every year in this business, every year, there's typhoons, cyclones, hurricanes, every year almost every year there's a disease scare ebola zika mers every year there's geopolitical tension fuel prices spike currencies go the wrong way every year it's a recession in some part of (laughs) the world all those things are going to happen assume they're going to happen now how we're going to make our numbers okay and and if you have that orientation and you prepare, and you organize the will to prepare, you prepare an organizer on it, you can produce great results. And our team has produced really great results despite all those things the last five years.
0: So essentially you say, look, anticipate all those things that are going to happen, and, and let's figure out before they happen how we're going to navigate those things.
1: Well, you got to realize that some of them you're not going to be able to navigate. They're going to ding you, so you're you're going to get hit. So if you're hit there, you got to make up for it somewhere else. So assume you're getting hit, how would you make up for it? And put that in your plan. But it's more than that. You know, it's first of all, organizing around the guests. You know, the essential aspect of our businesses exceed our guests' expectations. If we do that, all things are possible. If we don't do that, nothing else matters. Besides that, we're all human beings. I have kids and grandkids. I want them to breathe clean air. We take guests to beautiful places. It's really important for us; those places stay beautiful. The marine needs to life needs to be great. The reefs need to be protected. I mean, we are totally focused on that stuff because it's it's really what our business is. And, and if we ignore that, you know, we destroy our own business. And so, uh, so those are the things. But get everybody organized, oriented, focused and then getting them to communicate, collaborate, and coordinate with each other. Uh, and and that was it, have them own the outcomes, have them own the vision, and it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Arnold, I, I wanna talk to you about
0: a, a really important part of your, like what you're known for in management, which is diversity. And a lot of Fortune 500 companies use this word, right? And, and a lot of them pay lip service to it. Um, and and for some people, let's let's not mince words. For some people, uh, many of whom are white men, and, and I'm a white man, and so and 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 there are white men listening to the show. And I hope hey, I'm not of, offending
1: them. They're uh, part of diversity too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right,
0: right. It's important to have conversations about this because that word uh, seems to be a trigger word for some people. Like like almost as if that word means they are going to be left out. So let's let's just start with when I say diversity, what is that word like how do you define
1: that idea so diversity for me is diversity of thinking so if you want diversity of thinking you enhance the probability of having that if you have diverse people now they have to be organized around a common objective they have to have work processes to work together because they're different from each other so they're not naturally going to work together all that well necessary you have got to have processes for that but if you put that in place A diverse team of people organized around a common objective will out-solution a homogeneous group of people almost every time, and almost every time if there's inclusion. So when I also hear diversity, I think of inclusion, and inclusion means everybody has a seat at the table, everybody's voice is heard, everybody is rewarded and recognized, but it's diversity of thinking. But you need diversity. I have on my ship's we have people from sixty over sixty different countries that's a huge amount of diversity yeah. um, when you think about it at the top of the organization. I engineer diversity at the top, purposefully engineer it I have a a a leader for one of our largest brands doesn't have a college degree hmm. that's on purpose it's on purpose you know the the guy whose legacy you know is carnival also doesn't have a college degree he's a multi billionaire so so but the point being that you you want That diversity of how that person thinks differently because they haven't been processed like everybody else through the same experience. Yeah. You know, we have LGBT member. I have three women. I have African American who never ran an operating business of any type. Okay. Um, so when you insert these people, you have to find the core character. So it's not about credentials. You know, it's not about that stuff. It's about leadership, character, skills.
0: When you look at the, the C-suites in America, it is still predominantly white. It's still predominantly male.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I mean, you're talking about some, some really interesting techniques and ideas like like recruiting people without traditional credentials, maybe even mm-hmm. without college degrees. But, I mean, do you find that it's more challenging when you're looking for executive level people? And, and how do you right. do that? Like, how do you make sure that you find diversity at those levels?
1: There are a lot of talented people in the world, and um, the reality is, um, the, what it really takes is a commitment to diversity. You have to see diversity like you see profits. No, nobody asks the question, "Hey, is it going to be difficult to have profits?" I mean, it's like you know, diversity is a core thing, and and you want to pur- you have to purposely engineer it because people, as human beings, we naturally gather, you know, and the people that are like-minded, like values, so on and so forth. I think one of the biggest challenges to diversity is the concept of, do they fit our culture? Yes, okay? yes, yes, right. Um, because all, you're now starting to homogenize everything when you say that. And you're, you're actually taking diversity out in a way, okay? So sometimes that person that's the most disruptive, the most difficult to get along with, takes the most time in meetings, is also the disruptor. Yeah. <laughs> and so inclusion doesn't just mean including black, white, you know, female, all that. It also means including people who are different. I mean, it's so interesting because
0: so many corporate leaders talk about culture, you know, we look for people who fit into our culture. and, and but but you're right. I mean, that, that when you focus on culture, it, it can often be a hindrance to diversity, right? It can and be. So, yeah, yeah, but it, it, it sounds be. like what you're saying is that it is not that important for everyone you hire to fit into the culture or, or at least buy into it right away. Is, is that – am I hearing that right?
1: Well, you know, the problem with the culture thing is how it's defined. So, you know, if somebody comes into our company and they aren't focused on exceeding guest expectations – That's not gonna work. (laughs) Okay? Because, because that's what we're all about. So if you define a culture, if you define culture that narrowly, then it would be fine. But if you define culture as you have to have a certain style of how you talk to people, you, you have to have a certain way of dress, you have to have a certain way. If it's that kind of culture, then no. Now, now you're wiping out diversity. So it depends what they mean when they say our culture. You know, that's a very generic phrase and it's how people interpret that that matters. But if everybody talks the same way and they behave and they have certain mannerisms and how they present a point and all that stuff, now you're just homogenizing and that's that's not good. Yeah. I, I wonder how you deal with, I mean, you're running an enormous operation,
0: nine different companies, nine different leaders who are reporting to you. Um, and I think of great leaders like like Barack Obama, you know he ran an administration right, and he had to do health care and financial reform and there was a lot of compromise and, and a lot of things he probably wished he didn 't have to compromise on but he he had to delegate things to congress or or to other folks to deal with the details, which is one style of leadership, but it, it means you don 't always get exactly what you want so like, how do you do that? Do you, do you also feel like you, you've just got to trust your people and delegate, even if the way they do it is not exactly the way you want it to be done?
1: Definitely, when it gets to the way they do it, that there are a lot of roads that'll get you to a place, okay? As long as there's a road that'll get you there, it's an okay road. And with diversity, there are going to be different ways of getting things done, and so so that I'm totally fine with if they don't do it my way. However, that road has to get you there. And so what I seek is you know, clear alignment on what we're trying to accomplish. It has to be crystal clear. And you use that as the metric. And that's what I learned, for example, from JDRF. The clear alignment there is find a cure. Is it going to get us to a cure faster? Yeah. And when people argue over the color of napkins at a gala and it's multi-billionaires arguing over the color of napkins because they're emotional about the whole thing, and you say, is it going to get us to a cure faster? They calm down and realize, okay, whatever color is is fine. <laughs> okay. And, and so, so having that clarity of purpose is so important. And it's hard to do in business, it's easy to do with something like you know, type 1 diabetes. But, but business is hard to do, but, but you can do it, and, and, and so you have to start with that clarity.
0: So Arnold, last question that, that I want to ask you, which is a question I ask all my guests, is do you, do you think you were born a leader, or, or, or do you think that's a skill that you learned over the course of your career?
1: I definitely think I learned. Over the course of a career, to whatever degree I am a good effective leader, I think I was born with some very basic things that got nurtured early, um, which you see in a lot of people from the audience. I love people, and people can feel that from me, and that causes them to open up, and they're you know they're welcoming for ideas and exchange, and so you know that core thing I was born with. Uh, The rest of it, you know, a lot of it I learned along the way through observation, experience, mistakes, you know, and, you know, successes that reinforce hopefully the right behaviors.
0: Arnold Donald, he's the CEO of Carnival company recently agreed to pay the federal government $20 million after a judge found some of its ships had released wastewater into the ocean. Arnold Donald was in the courtroom where he took responsibility for the company's violations. He told the judge that he's going to personally formulate a plan to prevent it from ever happening again. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built-It Productions and Luminary Media.